This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, parents in American Samoa fear for their children's safety after health authorities declare close to 50 probable cases of measles in the territory. Well, we've been going on walks, but as long as no one is around us, but at the same time, I still have that that bit of paranoia of whether or not um, she should be out. Meanwhile, calls grow louder from military leaders to recruit Pacific Islanders into the Australian Defence Force in an effort to replenish its ranks. And French Polynesia's pro-independence party has claimed victory at the election. We'll find out how that unfolded and more today on the show. I'm Kyle Evans. So glad to have your company. First, though, we'll take you to American Samoa, where there are now two confirmed and 49 probable cases of measles. The Territory declared a public health emergency last week with the closure of daycare centres and a mass vaccination campaign underway. Dabrovka Volodair with more. When Sabrina Sululai Mahuka from Pango Pango heard about the measles cases, she was worried for her 11-month-old baby. I was alarmed. My child is very young. Kind of just made me question, like, where have I been taking my daughter this whole time? Maybe she was exposed. Um, do I need to get her checked? And so I was, I was definitely panicking. The 31-year-old liked to go for daily walks with her daughter, but she's now cut down on many activities. Now we've been limiting how much she can go out. Even just going to the store is, is questionable to us. And so we've been going on walks, but as long as no one is around us. But at the same time, I still have that that bit of paranoia of whether or not um, she should be out. Usually, children get their first measles jabs when they are one year old, but it was pushed forward to six months. Sabrina joined the queue to immunize her daughter. I definitely did get her vaccinated uh, just this past week because I just wanted to be on the safe side. While she supports the government's response now, she says they could have acted quicker to start with, which would have made her feel safer. Department of Health epidemiologist Dr. Scott Anisi says they have been working around the clock to drive up vaccination rates. Since the, the beginning of April and, and uh, the response, we've administered uh, 1,640 vaccines. We have been able to get over 97% of vaccination coverage in both elementary and high schools. Uh, when presented with this information, the government leadership felt comfortable opening up elementary and high schools under the condition that only those that are fully vaccinated will be allowed into elementary and high schools. He says the overall immunization rate is at about 90%. Measles symptoms show up a week or two after infection with the virus and include fever, a runny nose and a cough. A few days later, a red spotty rash usually shows up on the face and body. Dr. Anisi says the suspected cases are being mostly cared for at home. All have mild uh, symptoms, mild to moderate, as identified through the health team. Out of those, we've only had two admissions, a five-month-old and a two-month-old that were admitted in the hospital, but then have since been released. A health and vaccine expert from the University of Auckland, Dr. Helen Petusis-Harris, 
says a short, sharp intervention to try to stop the spread is a good idea. But she warns the measles virus might cross borders. It's a concern. It was it was a concern before the pandemic. We'd been sort of saying, oh gosh, you know, this is this is looking more and more likely. Now it's just not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and we need to be prepared. And that's going to be hard with such a um, exhausted workforce. She says nearby countries should watch out for symptoms and ramp things up if necessary. American Samoa has sent out alerts to other Pacific countries to help with their preparedness. In neighboring Samoa, the Director General of Health, Ayono Dr. Alec Ekeroma, says the country is still measles-free, but they have been preparing. We are very worried because American Samoa is our neighbor, only 80 miles from us, and uh, there's uh, frequent travel between the two countries. So there is uh, a huge potential for infection to cross the border. However, uh, for the past five weeks, we have uh, increased our vaccination uh, campaign. Samoa has also pushed the first dose forward to six months. And all travellers from American Samoa must show proof of their measles immunizations. In 2019, a measles outbreak in Samoa had devastating effects, leading to more than 80 deaths. But he says it's different now. In 2019, only 25% of the eligible population were vaccinated against measles. Whereas now, about 80% have been vaccinated completely. So therefore, there's a huge difference. While authorities in Samoa may be confident, there's still frustration for parents like Fitulia Pai, who has a three-year-old. Right now, I'm not worried, but I'm frustrated. <laughs> I'm frustrated that there were there's still um, irresponsible people in, in Samoa. I hope that people that be well-informed understand the importance of being a parent Concerning stuff there, and that was a concerned mother, Fetu Liapai, from Samoa, ending that report by Dubrovka Volodair. Well, there's a growing chorus of people calling for the Australian Defence Force to recruit Pacific Islanders to help address a recruitment crisis. It's not a it's not it's not a new idea, but appears to be gaining traction after the Australian government set a goal of adding an extra 18,000 uniformed personnel by 2040, despite struggling to maintain current staffing numbers. Currently, only Australian citizens can serve in the military, except in exceptional circumstances. One person who thinks it's a good idea is Fijian. William Wangavakatonga, he served in the British Army, which has been recruiting Fijians for several decades, and he joins us now. Joins us now. William, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning to you. I guess just firstly, why is recruiting Pacific Islanders into the Australian Defence Force a good idea? I think the idea of recruitment, um, uh, in hindsight, you know, it, it's neither a good idea or a bad one. Rather, it is one that uh, is not necessarily unwelcome. Um, so what do I mean by this? I think different Pacific Island countries will definitely have different opinions on this based on their own relationship with Australia and their own individual uh, perspectives of any army. So the opinion I've, I've been giving is more centred around what I think Fiji may have in regards to this, um, especially with experience of having, of having over a thousand you know, current and former British Army 
service personnel. I will say this, uh, Fiji has not had a, had a public outcry in the past two decades of Fijians joining the British Army. So, you know, this indicates that uh, if Australia was to consider um, with, with the idea that is being floated around at, at the moment, it would not be uh, met with disagreements. And that's purely based on, you know, the British Army uh, experience, uh, I would argue. Why do you think Fiji uh, in particular would, would support such an idea? Well, one thing is 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 for, is for certain. Um, well, I'm, I'm aware of um, you know this idea uh, is is not necessarily new, and I understand that in the late 90s um, the idea was openly mooted that two battalions of Fijians would be stationed between Darwin and Perth. From you know that process alone in the 90s, you know already back then you know this, the the you know, one-way detect security threats were present uh, at the time. And 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 so, it is. You know, I think uh, um, it is something that you know Fiji has its own military forces, and you know we are. You know, Fiji as 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 a country is familiar. You know, with with the, with the type of work involved uh, with you know with the RFMF and you know uh, the British Army. Um, so I think it would be more. It would have a more acceptable reception. Of, of 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 that idea uh, for the country. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now I know you served uh, in the British military for a, a number of years. What impact did serving a, a fallen military uh, have on your life? Were you were you better for it? <laughs> well, that's uh, I mean that's a loaded question um, <laughs> the, the, because uh, you know. In some of the experiences that you you go through the, in the army, you know, it stays with you even after you do leave. And one of the things that I've I've noticed, and which has been unfortunate, is that there's not been enough uh, studies with what happens to uh, you know former Commonwealth soldiers after they leave. And last year, I was part of uh, a survey done uh, that was being conducted by um, this uh, non-profit organisation on behalf of the UK Veterans Association on soldiers that had left, uh, you know, in the past 20 years that had served. And so a lot is unknown about this, you know, you know, Commonwealth soldiers, uh, you know, Fijian veterans after they leave, because there's still a lot of uh, issues in regards to immigration. We see that happening in the UK uh, still. There are, you know, there are these unseen scars of, you know, serving in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and, mm. and other theatres that continues after leaving. So the idea of, you know, when, when I joined, you know, 9-11 had not occurred. But what's happening at the moment, we are now exposed to more information. And, you know, if all, uh, you know, all these experts out of the U.S. saying that the next theater that is likely happening will be around Asia, then that information would have to be made available to those potential recruits. And therefore, there will be consequences of joining. And that's why I, I in, in my recent paper, I said that you know, no one joins with the hope of going to war. But... You know the likelihood of, of it happening is real, and has to be any country in the Pacific that sends their sons and daughters, you know, you know, whether to the British Army or, or you know the Foreign Legion, that has to be considered carefully of what the losses may take place. The losses in Fiji so far have been, I would say, acceptable um, from Iraq and Af- Afghanistan, but what happens when you know 
that increases. I think these are the these are the fair questions that need to be thought out uh, carefully. It has to be debated vigorously by not only you know personnel that have served, but you know even uh, the civilian uh, NGOs and you know every member of 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 society, including uh, Parliament. Yeah, very valid valid questions you raised there. You spoke about those lingering scars from recent conflicts as well. That's been a huge issue across the world, particularly in Australia as well. We've seen royal commissions and whatnot look into the impacts of that. Um, just from a cultural standpoint, did, did you feel a, a disconnect from your own Fijian culture at all while in, during your time serving um, in the British military? I, I personally did not uh, feel that disconnect. Um, I was fortunate because I was surrounded by you know a lot of uh, Fijians uh, who we had all joined around the same time. When I had left the, the battalion, uh, uh, there were 30 more than 30 soldiers from Fiji. <laughs> so there's no shortage of that cultural connect. Mm. Uh, and I think if you, if you, if you go to the, to the British Army today or, um, you know, that there's still this, there's this big community of, of uh, servicemen and women uh, there. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Kyle Evans, and I'm speaking with a former Fijian British Army veteran about the potential of uh, Pacific Islanders serving in the Australian Defence Force. William, let's move on for a second. What benefits would Pacific recruitment have um, for the Australian Defence Force, do you think? The benefits... I mean, well, that's the, the the obvious one at the moment is uh, economic benefits. And uh, in my recent paper, I talk about the youth bulge, where we have a very young uh, population in Fiji. Um, before I had come across to, uh, to Australia, I was teaching at the University of the South Pacific, and we are having uh, th- there are a lot of graduates that are coming out, but there is no work. Uh, there's not enough job opportunities uh, for to absorb these. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, this uh, youth uh, uh, population. Um, so one is uh, definitely finding some form of, of work, but, you know, I, I understand that this argument that, you know, this is perhaps exploitation, but then I also know that, uh, you know, things like the Pacific Australia Labour Mobility Scheme, mm. I mean, people are coming across for that itself, you know, for uh, people are leaving some, some good jobs purely because, you know, it is more attractive uh, to come and work uh, in Australia. Um, the benefit is definitely, uh, you know, economics uh, from, you know, from a standpoint of a Fijian. Um, so, um, and, you know, if there's pathway to citizenship, uh, if, if the idea of float around is, you know, takes place, um, then, that, you know, that uh, Wu connection definitely <laughs> is reinforced. Yeah, I guess we've spoken a lot in recent months about the uh, you know the brain drain from the Pacific and, the, and this this huge um, labour shortage as a result of things like the labour mobility schemes and things like that. Do you do you think is there a large cohort of, of Fijian um, sort of uh, military aged people floating around that they could actually join the ADF? Do you think and without having uh, a negative impact uh, on their country back home? Well, one thing is we we can see that remittance is a major contributor to the Fiji economy. I, you know, I, I, it would be good to see some polls come out, or you know, uh, to see what exactly this would, you know, a short study of uh, of this of the age group and all that. Um, like I said, you know, there's a lot of information uh, that that we still do not have uh, to make a 
uh, you know, make uh, an informed uh, decision or in, in you know informed opinion on this. So you know, I I, I would like to see that uh, that take place for, for us to have an accurate picture rather than. Uh, assumptions. And what about uh, the potential uh, for recruits to be offered Australian citizenship at the end of their service? Is that a possibility? And is that something you got um, during your time with the British military as well? And, and so this is what I think would need to happen, you know, with the idea being floated around. They need to learn from the the British Army uh, experience. And they've, uh, you know, things have, were messy for a lot of uh uh, ex well Fijian soldiers that had served because they I remember at the time uh, before 2011 they still had not had a uh, when it came to immigration status of former soldiers a lot of Fijians were unaware of the pathway to citizenship so what did, does that mean it means that when they left they thought that you know the stamp that they had mm. allowed them to remain in the united kingdom but that was not the case and that's why you you, you may have seen recently the past few years you know there's been some high profile cases uh, of fijians who had you know gone to iraq and afghanistan missing out <laughs> on pathways to citizenship so australia can learn from that and you know make you know the decisions quickly but it wasn't i didn't join for that attraction uh that was my that's i didn't join because i, I wanted british citizenship i, I was uh, you know i wanted the idea to travel um but i know that uh now a lot of fijians that are leaving the british army they have british citizenship and and that's fine and and, and i think uh uh, a lot of those who missed out on it, um, they missed out it not because it was their fault, but but because it was the the, the army's fault of not having a clear guideline uh, during uh, when you're leaving the army of what needed to be done, and that was one of the uh, areas, you know, shortfalls, which I hope that does not happen again, should that uh, opportunity arise for. Yeah, well, I suppose it does lead into the next question in some ways, is that is there a risk Australia could exploit or take advantage of Pacific Islanders, you know, eager to earn a decent living? And I suppose, you know, one way they could be exploited is by, is by you know, providing all this service and, and not be awarded with, with something like citizenship afterwards. And the... You know, the sport to have should come after you leave also. And I think that's one thing that's uh, that's been missed out on a, on, on a few occasions uh, with ex-servicemen uh, from the UK. But, you know, the British Legion in Fiji, you know, they're doing a tremendous job trying to identify these, you know, people who have left. But, uh, you know, it, mm. I mean, it's, it's still work ongoing. And um, even today, you know, just in the past few months, I've had three of my friends join up recently. So there's no, you know, the, the recruitment has been going, you know, going nonstop. And yeah. so it just highlights the desire for younger people to, to you know, to to do something different. William, just lastly, uh, before we go, because we are running out of time, but I'm more just curious to, to get your opinion. Why, why do you think the Australian Defence Forces are struggling to recruit at the moment? It, it seems surprising to me that they're resorting to this, given I remember when I was growing up, it just seemed like such a hot commodity um, at the time. 
<laughs> well, I, I think uh, I mean times have changed. I mean, it's joining the army is not easy. Um, mm. it, it's 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 tough work, and and I know that uh, in, in the British Army they've they've tried to you know create that appeal on social media, but it is really tough work, and I I, I don't I don't want to assume anything uh, here, but um, I, you know I would like to, to know also why people aren't, aren't joining. Um, the army, uh, you know, I guess times have changed, you know, mm. different generation. So, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Leave it at that. <laughs> That's a, a, a mix of, uh, of cultural as well as, yeah, other things. But uh, no, William, uh, fascinating insight. And thank you very much uh, for joining us on, uh, on Pacific Bay today. My, my pleasure, Vinaka. That was a British, uh, a Fijian British Army veteran, William Wangafatonga, and he was talking about the potential of uh, Pacific Islanders perhaps serving uh, in the Australian Defence Force. We'll, uh, we'll see what happens uh, with that. Now it's time to find out what's making headlines around the region. And to do that, I'm joined by Pacific Beat producer Nick Fogarty. Nick, welcome to the chair. Morning, Kyle. Good morning to you. And I guess just firstly, on a theme we've seen regularly in the last 18 months or so, as the world slowly opens back up after the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic, international travellers, it seems, is returning to another Pacific island. That's right. This time it's Kiribati's Kiritamati Island, which yesterday welcomed its first international travellers in over three years as weekly airline service has resumed. Uh, Radio New Zealand reports that travellers will still be required to present their vaccination certificate showing double vaccination against COVID. Uh, so that's something to be aware of for those travellers who are jumping on flights from Nandi and Honolulu. And uh, the key tourist activity there is apparently fly fishing on the island's well-preserved fishing flats, if you're into that. Uh, And while we're on the topic of international flights, um, the Solomon Times Online is reporting that Solomon Airlines' only international aircraft has been grounded since last Thursday due to a fuel contamination issue. It's an Airbus 320 and Solomon Islands CEO Gus Krauss says the airline is liaising with Airbus and they're urgently seeking replacement aircraft. Not good news there at all. Great news about uh, that island in Kiribati, though. I'm currently looking at a mm. Pacific holiday with my partner sometime later <laughs> in the year, so perhaps a, uh, perhaps some potential perhaps. there. Uh, let's move on. Some unhappy news out of Palau with the country uh, succumbing to a drought. Is that right? Yeah, something we know all too well in Australia, if not during the last few years of the La Nina conditions we've been having. But Palau has been placed under stage one of its drought action plan by the National Emergency Committee. The Island Times is reporting a public advisory saying the country has a 50% chance of experiencing drought. Now, the National Weather Service also has Palau on El Nino watch, that being the counterpoint to La Nina. So El Nino is a weather cycle that can bring extremely dry conditions and very little scattered rainfall. According to the National Emergency Committee, stage one means water levels have fallen to 85% capacity uh, and the public there in Palau is being urged to conserve water. Yeah, that's no good at all. And uh, El Nino, I think that's a term we'll be hearing a lot of uh, over the coming two years. Uh, And lastly, there's been uh, quite a puzzling story involving a Cook Islands yacht. Is that right? Yeah, strange one here. Uh, Maritime Cook Islands has reported a Cook Island flagged yacht is being investigated 
after it became involved in a shootout in the Gulf of Aden. Uh, the shootout uh, tragically led to the death of a Yemeni Coast Guardsman. Um, the yacht has been named as the luxury Kalimza yacht, uh, which had once been owned by the late Welsh actor Richard Burton. Uh, Maritime Cook Islands reported that security personnel on board the yacht mistook an approaching Yemeni Coast Guard ship for being pirates. Uh, so maybe more to come out of that still. Yeah, it sounds uh, that all sounds a, li- a little bit traumatic, that one. Not good news at all. Uh, well, Nick, that's a pretty pretty interesting uh, news wrap today in, in what was, I was looking at like a pretty pretty slow day around the region. We were having a chat before the show. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. No problem, Kyle. That was Nick Fogarty there. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. It's Wednesday, May 3, and you're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. And if you're just joining us, we've been uh, unpacking the measles outbreak in American Samoa, where there are now 49 confirmed cases across the territory. We've also been uh, looking at calls to recruit Pacific Islanders into the Australian Defence Force. Really interesting chat just before. Still more to come, however. We'll chat with PNG Rugby League star Elsie Albert about her contract extension with the Parramatta Eels. And later, we'll learn how French Polynesia's pro-independent Independence Party claimed victory. And just on that, being a rugby league player in the women's competition in Australia is more than just playing for the club. And for Elsie Albert, it's all about her family back home in Papua New Guinea. For this reason, she has signed on to play for two more seasons with the Parramatta Eels NRL club. Elsie says the past three seasons with the St George Illawarra Dragons has given her the opportunity to develop as a player both on and off the field. She's also not one to shy away from speaking up about issues impacting PNG society, adding, if we don't speak up, who else will? Elsie Albert spoke to Hilda Wayne about signing on with new NRL team, the Parramatta Eels. Um, St. George Lewaris obviously been the club that helped you, you know, make a breakthrough into this NRLW in Australia. Um, what? How did that experience build you up and prepare you for... Uh, league in Australia. St. George, I'll always be grateful, you know, grateful to St. George for what they've done for me. They've, you know, they've given me the opportunity to come down and um, to have, have a crack in the NRLW and, you know, they've always been there for me for the last three seasons. You know, they've helped me not only on the field but off the field as well. And, you know, for that, you know, I'll always be grateful um, to, to the St. George Dragons for, you know, giving me that opportunity. And, you know, um, while my three, like, like three seasons with them, you know, I've come to know some great people there, you know, I've come to make some great friendship as well with the players and with the staff as well. And, you know, for that, I'm, I'll always be grateful. But unfortunately, you know, things just to come to an end. And I think it's, you know, it's time that, you know, I move on and um, start, start me somewhere else. And I think uh, that's where I'm going to be with the Eels now. And um, what motivated the decision to move from St. George Lawara to Paramata Eels? Um, it's purely, you know, um, my family. You know, I have, to, I have to look after my family as an islander living here in Australia. You know, and we, we are like the major support system to our family back home. And, you know, what's, what's important is, you know, I look after my family back home. And I think for me to do that is, you know, the opportunity is, I think it's with, the, it's with, um, para and you know that's why I took took out the contract to Para and apart from that, uh, I think Para is a great club as well and I'm looking forward to 
and then my skills as well with the Sarah and yeah, have a good season. Apart from the season this year and looking forward to it, what are the uh, representative uh, games do you hope or big events, games that are coming up that you're looking forward to? Is there any coming up at all? Yeah, um, there's some, you know, talks going around that there's going to be some games towards the end of end of the NRW and the NRW season. Um, I think one of them would be like international test matches and stuff. So it's not yet confirmed and I don't know, um, you know, who's going to take part in the test matches. But um, yeah, they said it towards the end of the NRW season. So I'm looking forward to, to those games apart from playing in the NRW competition um, this season. Now, going back to uh, you mentioning that you represent um, your people, not just, you know, playing for your team. Um, you represent your people, your family, and also the country. And um, just like Justin Orlum, you haven't uh, you haven't been quiet. You actually speak up about issues that impact people in Papua New Guinea, but most, most of all you, yourself, where your community lacks basic services and so forth, and you don't um, hesitate to speak up about these issues. Um, why is it important that you use your platform to talk about these issues? I think, you know, it's, it's important if, if, you're, if you're someone, you know, in that part where you can, you can influence other people, and if you have that influence power, like, I think it's good to start conversation. That's why, you know, I did what I did, and, um, you know, I said what I said, and, you know, it's good. It's always good to welcome, like, negative and positive comments as well, because um, you know that you've started uh, a conversation, and people have to talk about it. If you know, if we don't talk about it, you know, who's gonna who's gonna talk about this these things? Like, if you're in that, if you're that person, and if you have if you have influential, and if you can, um, you know, spark or start a conversation, let's um, I, let's do that. So you know, that's the thought. That's my thought processing when I wrote what I wrote on social media and stuff. You know, if 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 you know, walking, if if I, I if I if I'm not doing it, who's gonna do it? So. You know, that's the thought when I, I had when I wrote what I wrote. So, yeah, like if anything we can do to better our country, like we're representing our country in a foreign foreign state and, you know, foreign uh, country. So, um, yeah, I'm just trying to do my best to, you know, help PNG and, um, yeah, just bring positive around it. And now you have been a sort of force in the NRLW, people, you know, look at you, you always impact the game when you play. And I'm pretty sure you're not the only one from coming out of PNG. Which players do you think would make it into the NRLW if clubs are interested in looking at players from PNG, Women's League? Yeah, so um, like currently we have a few girls down here in Australia, but they're still, they're still um, you know, like at, the, at that development phase, uh, like I was when I got down. So they're still they're still learning the game. They're still trying to um, cope up with the intensity and the knowledge and like understanding of the, around the game. So you know I feel you know they're gonna the, the girls that are down here gonna have a have a crack at NRLW. Um, so yeah, it's, it's 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 just a matter of time and yeah how they commit themselves and being consistent, being disciplined, and all this stuff. So yeah, we've got a few girls down here, so we're keeping an eye on them. Um, so yeah, hopefully they make uh, NRLW. That was Elsie Albert, PNG NRLW player, speaking there with Hilda Wayne.
Well, as countries like Palau move to limit the effects of nicotine vaping, more evidence is emerging about how young people are being affected by the habit. Health experts fear a new generation of nicotine addicts is emerging. Now a 15-year-old Western Australian boy is speaking out about his battle to give up vaping in the hope others his age will take note. Isabel Musali reports. For Perth boy Angus, his experience with vaping started in year seven. It was a good feeling. I really enjoyed it. I like the flavours. It's the size of like my headphones, like just little earbuds. It's super easy. You can just like hide them in your sleeve, put them in your pocket, everything. In Australia, you can only legally access nicotine vapes if you're coming off cigarettes and have a doctor's prescription. But Angus says he knows he was using vapes with nicotine in it. His vape of choice contains 5%, according to the manufacturer's website. And every week, he used to go through a disposable vape of 3,500 puffs, containing potentially harmful chemicals. I noticed I'd started to get a cough. When I coughed, it tasted kind of fruity, like the vape flavours. That was kind of a pretty big warning sign for me, that it's gathering up in my lungs sort of thing. Um, But also just, like for my health in general, just so I can live and be able to do sports and activities and stuff. Don't, don't even try it. Don't, if you're on it, give it up. It's not worth it. Now at age 15, he's wearing nicotine patches and undergoing counselling as he battles withdrawal. With his mother's support, he's urging others to learn about the dangers. You're living off this little electronic device that kind of just dispenses happiness into your lungs kind of thing. That's kind of how it feels. It makes you feel like you can't survive without it. WA's Children's Commissioner, Jacqueline McGowan-Jones, is backing calls to stamp out illegal sales of the products. She recently tested out the black market herself. I went to a couple of places where people said you can buy them and it was as simple as just asking. I'm very concerned about it and I think we need to be clear, this is e-cigarettes. Whether they've got nicotine or not, they've still got all sorts of chemicals in them. I'm very concerned about the long-term health impacts. Dr Becky Freeman is an Associate Professor of Public Health at the University of Sydney. She runs Generation Vape, a three-year research project backed by the Cancer Council and the Department of Health. She says convenience stores and online outlets are freely allowed to sell non-nicotine vapes, but she warns testing shows some of those non-nicotine products aren't living up to their labels and do contain the addictive agent. That's particularly concerning given how popular they are with teens. From our study, it appears to be around a third of the young people aged 13 to 17 and about half of people aged 18 to 24 have tried vaping products. From your perspective as someone who works in public health, how bad is the situation? I'm concerned that we've got to such a high level of vaping so quickly and we're spending a lot of time sort of dancing around and twiddling our thumbs and being concerned about it and worrying about it, but not really doing anything. Whereas if we were to act really decisively now and prevent young people from accessing these products at all, we could avoid a public health disaster. Federal Health Minister Mark Butler last month labelled vaping the number one behavioural issue, not just at high schools, but primary schools too. And now work is underway on a range of new measures to crack down on the black market. He didn't clarify when this would be announced, but in a statement he said health ministers are determined to take strong action on the explosion of illegal vaping, and all options are on the table. British American Tobacco said it's a misconception that companies such as them are responsible for the flood of illegal products and added the Voluntary Industry Code asked suppliers 
to ensure vaping products have retail packaging with a clear and prominent warning statement providing that the product is only to be used by persons over the age of 18. It is a concerning habit. That was Isabel Masali reporting with Claire Moody. Pacific Beat. French Polynesia's pro-independence party Tavini Hui-Ratira has claimed election victory, paving the way for Moatai Brotherson's presidency. The party secured 44.3% of the April 30 vote, winning a total of 38 out of 57 seats in the Assembly and ending 10 years of governance by the pro-France Tapua Hui-Ratira party. With talks of independence going in New Caledonia, what will Brotherson's vision for change in French Polynesia mean for the French territory. Joining us now is Nick Nick McClellan, correspondent for Island Business Magazine. Nick, welcome to the show. Good morning. I guess just firstly, uh, did experts predict this result? I think people uh, saw it coming for a variety of reasons. Last year, there were elections for the French National Assembly in Paris. Uh, there are three seats for French Polynesia in the French legislature, and the Independence Party, Tovini Huratira, did incredibly well. They won an unprecedented electoral victory in June last year, winning all three seats, uh, first time that it ever happened. They had uh, younger candidates, um, Moatai Brotherson, uh, who's in his early 50s, young by uh, local standards, and um, uh, two um, other candidates, one in the 30s, one in 21-year-old, the youngest person ever elected the French National Assembly. And the coalition that, that had that electoral success in June 2022 draw in many supporters for Tavini who weren't traditionally pro-independence people, but they were younger people, uh, people who'd been hit hard by the COVID pandemic and who were angry at the failures of the government led by Edward Fritsch, uh, the long-standing president at the time. Yeah, really interesting stuff there. Can you explain some of the key factors for the outcome? Did did COVID-19 play a part? Was there cost of living issues? I mean, was it similar to what we've seen across the board in other countries? Very much so. Although the issue of independence was raised a lot during the electoral campaign, many voters were focused on local issues. Um, um, French Polynesia was hit really hard during the pandemic. There were two major waves of infection. Indeed, French Polynesia had the highest per capita rates of death of anywhere in the Pacific. Um, and uh, there was a lot of criticism of the French government at the time um, because uh, of the mismanagement of the pandemic. Um, even the vice president, Thierry Alpha, at the time was forced to resign um, from the government because he refused to have a vaccination, which sort of undercut the message mm. coming from health authorities. French Polynesia was hit hard by tourism um, collapse. Uh, you know, it's a major economic sector. And um, with the closure of airports like happened around the region, the economy would did it tough. So people were angry about uh, this mismanagement. There are also a whole range of economic policies. The government brought in a, a tax, a value-added tax, um, last year, which uh, really angered a lot of working people and farmers. Um, there'd been several resignations from the government. Uh, key ministers had left um, the the French government um, and uh, formed their own political parties. So although they were pro-French, what they call autonomous parties in French Polynesia, um, they just couldn't put up with the the uh, the style of governance that was in the in the government at the time. So there's a lot of public anger at the French government, and that was reflected in the polls, where Tavini increased its vote at the last elections in 2018. They got about 23% of the vote, 
This time they got more than 44%. So it was a, a major surge and a significant electoral victory for a, a party that's been around since um, the 1970s. And and, and for, for Mr Brotherson, was this the first time he had run as the leader of this party or had he already been knocking on the door? Look, it's a significant generational change. Um, Brotherson's been a leading figure in the party for some time. Uh, he was elected first to the French National Assembly in 2018 uh, to represent French Polynesia there. Um, he's been a, a really um, articulate leader. Uh, he's in his early 50s, um, uh, very worldly, speaks perfect English, uh, um, someone who's, who's obviously on the, on the rise within Tavini. The old guard leaders, however, are still there. And indeed, Oscar Temeru, the long-standing anti-nuclear pro-independence leader of Tavini, the founder of the party, actually headed the ticket for the elections. However, Temeru's uh, quite elderly now in, in poor health. And um, the party decided uh, at their Congress in March that Motai Brotherson, rather than their long-standing leader, would be their candidate for the presidency. And so when the um, uh, Assembly of French Polynesia meets on the 11th of March, uh, 11th of May, um, they'll hold elections within a couple of days for the presidency. And um, as you mentioned, Tavini Huiratira has a, an overwhelming majority in the Congress, in the Assembly, and Moatai um, uh, Brotherson will be the next president, um, a pro-independence president of French Polynesia. Quite a significant change. Yeah, a huge change. Now, the presidential term is five years uh, in French Polynesia. Are we likely to see a referendum for, for independence within that time frame? It's difficult to say. Moatai Brotherson's been very cautious um, about uh, putting a timeline on this and indeed has received some criticism from within his own party um, for, for not pushing ahead as fast. I think they want to get into government first um, and address the, the things that affect all voters, about cost of living, about the climate crisis, about the uh, challenges facing people in the outer islands. Um, although the Tavini vote was strongest in the main islands, like um, um, Tahiti and uh, Morea, um, people in the outer islands uh, tended to vote for Tapura. So there's still work to be done at the domestic level. But um, Brotherson is quite clear. His long-term vision is to create a, an independent and sovereign state and um, I think that issue will certainly uh, be on the agenda. Um, but I think uh, getting down to work on issues around education, health, cost of living, the climate uh, emergency. Um, it'll also be important that Brotherson will be active on the regional stage. Um, for example, he's a member of the uh, Pacific Parliamentarians Against Deep Sea Mining, which is a regional network established um, a couple of years ago. And French Polynesia, with 5 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone, mm. is going to be a significant player in that debate, um, which will come up at this year's forum uh, in the Cook Islands. Yes, it will. We'll be waiting with bated breath uh, to see how that one turns out. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Kyle Evans, and I'm chatting with Nick McLennan from Island Business Magazine about French Polynesia's pro-independence party, who is basking in election victory. Now, Nick, the Pacific has been a, a major geopolitical focus for the French government. What impact is this going to have uh, on their position in the Pacific? This is a, a big challenge for the uh, Macron administration. Um, you know, President Emmanuel Macron is in big trouble domestically. Um, people may have seen in the news massive protests against reforms that he's rammed through um, the, the French legislature around uh, pension reform and the retirement age in France. 
there is literally rioting in the streets um, and massive protests from working people um, in France. And his uh, standing in the opinion polls has collapsed um, despite his re-election um, um, last year. There's um, a real challenge now because in both New Caledonia and French Polynesia, there will be uh, two presidents, uh, two governments that support independence. Um, and both uh, Louis Mapu of New Caledonia and uh, Motai Brotherson will be very active in the Pacific Islands Forum. Both of those two French dependencies joined the forum in 2016. And so they're very much of the same mind that they want to promote regional engagement. They want to break down the isolation of the French-speaking uh, Pacific uh, to build closer ties with uh, neighbouring countries, uh, diplomatic ties, trade ties, economic ties. They're also very eager to work on common agendas, agendas around climate change, around the oceans, around deep sea mining, and so on. Um, and that just clashes with the sort of vision that uh, President Macron promoted in his uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, which was adopted formally in 2021. Uh, Macron you know, has uh, a, a vision of France as a balancing force in the Indo-Pacific region between the United States and China. Um, but France is a nuclear power. Um, France conducted 193 nuclear tests in French Polynesia. And uh, so you'll find, I think, from uh, President Brotherhood, uh, Brotherson, when he's uh, elected in, in a couple of weeks' time, a very strong anti-nuclear sentiment. And that has reverberations for AUKUS, has <laughs> reverberations for mm. Australia, given the commitment of the Labor Party to purchase nuclear submarines. Um, I interviewed um, President Mapu recently uh, of New Caledonia, and he said very clearly that the movement he's a member of, the Canac uh, Socialist National Liberation Front, they've always been proudly non-aligned. They attend the non-aligned summit. Um, he highlighted that uh, the FLNKS has always been a supporter of a nuclear-free and independent Pacific. And uh, he had questions um, to ask about Australia's policy. And indeed, when uh, Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong visited New Caledonia just uh, a week or so ago, um, that issue was raised about AUKUS and about the implications of uh, Australia's strategic alliance with the United States. Um, so I think, you know, there's uh, there's no hostility to Australia in, in these countries. I think there's an eagerness indeed to break the ties uh, that have bound people to Paris for so long and to engage with the region. But I think that clashes with the priorities of France's Indo-Pacific strategy, um, which is maintaining French rule in the region. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people would, would probably uh, agree with you on that one. Um Lastly, before we go, Brotherson has indicated that uh, Ilani Teviatua will be his vice president. What sort of changes is Brotherson looking to enact uh, around climate change and, uh, and women's representation in politics as well? Well, under a, a French law, actually, rather than a local law, the loi de parité, a parity law, um, electoral lists in the French dependencies have to be 50% women. Um, so you see in the Congress of New Caledonia, in the Assembly of French Polynesia, um, a lot of women's rep representation, nearly half the Congress in New Caledonia is women. And um, the first um, elected president and vice president of, uh, of the region uh, was in New Caledonia in 2004. Um, we had a female president and female vice president at the same time. 
Um, so women will play a, an important role in this, and there's some very strong women in the uh, incoming government. One of the features of this uh, electoral system too is you can bring in people who aren't members of the assembly into the government. So I think, um, although they haven't announced the full cabinet, uh, um, the assembly doesn't meet uh, for another week or so, um, you'll see uh, some younger people coming into the government, um, some, I think, people with experience in health and education uh, that will uh, address local cultural issues. Um, Steve Shayu, who was elected to the uh, National Assembly as a, a, a promoter of uh, Maui culture and language. So I think you're going to see some, some younger, um, uh, more experienced, uh, educated uh, people coming into the government and um, after, you know, the French government was in power since 2014, um, there's a, a mood for change and a mood to address, uh, you know, the issues that face all of us across the Pacific around climate change, around poverty and the cost of living, um, but also around uh, the regional agenda on oceans uh, and so on. And uh, Nicole, you know, I'll have to cut you off. Brotherson there. Sorry, will be at the forum, and that'll be really interesting. We're about to hit the top of the clock, but no, astute insight. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Uh, have a and have a great day. That was Nick McCle- uh, McClellan, correspondent with Island Business Magazine, talking all about the French Polynesian election. That's all we've got time for today. Please join us tomorrow at the same time. I'm Kyle Evans. It's been awesome hanging out with you.